0: Thanks for tuning in to the Southern Way Hunting Podcast on the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. I'm your host, Josh Raley, and on this show, you'll hear hunting tactics, stories, and strategies from hunters across the South. Our aim is to sharpen our skills as hunters and outdoorsmen, become more efficient and effective in pursuit of our craft, and even have a little fun while we're at it. And of course, no matter the pursuit, we focus on doing things the Southern Way. Everybody, welcome back to the Southern Way Hunting Podcast. We've got a good episode for you today. I had Mr. Brandon Barlow back on. Now, the last time I had Brandon on, we talked all about using historical data to get on bucks. And I knew there was a lot of that conversation that we kind of left on the table. That was out of necessity. We were both pretty busy. This time I had him on, though, to talk about a different angle on historical data. And that is how Brandon tracks and hunts does. A pretty big part of his hunting strategy every fall is based around when bucks begin to show back up in certain areas, and he learns where they're going to show up and times when they're going to show up according to does in specific areas and when he knows they're going to come into estrus. So this is a really, really good episode, lots of good information here, uh, one that I'm looking forward to going back and listening to myself because there's just a lot to pick up when it comes to finding doe family groups Tracking Dove family groups and then essentially hunting the bucks who are after those Dove family groups. So stick around. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, man, I, I got to say, you're quickly becoming one of my favorite people to talk to. Um, no, man. A, about deer hunting. You don't know many people so, that. No, well, listen. No, no, listen. Listen. I've done a couple hundred episodes at this point, and you're very quickly becoming one of my favorite folks to talk to because. I appreciate that. You are so stinking strategic about everything that you do. Like, I don't know where that came in for you, if that was just, like, always the way your mind works or if, like, you know, later in life, you took some engineering classes or something. <laughs> like, whatever it is that has, like, gotten <laughs> in there to you at this point has made you extremely, extremely, um, like, strategic about, about everything that you do. And that carries over even mm. into – into your doe hunting so um, I'm gonna go ahead and start recording if that's good with you and go ahead and start yeah chatting yeah go ahead and start chatting about does but um, before we get too far down that road can you can you give me just a quick rundown of your season since last time we talked I think last time we talked you were like a week post uh awesome September buck yeah
1: so as far as the uh post from the buck so killed that buck the 10 pointer on 925. And that was a goal accomplished for me. I wanted to kill a September mature buck, and I did with my bow. And that was that was a really a really great time for me in September. But it was immediately followed by October, which is when I make hay. That is my month. That is when I've probably killed eighty percent of my mature bucks. Or any really all my deer, because that's when I hunt. So if you hunt in January, you're gonna kill most of your deer in January. Well, I've always kind of been in October an October hunter, and so not being able to hunt this October really hurt me. I had three business trips that lasted a week each. Oh. Um, I went to Gainesville, Florida. Yeah, I went up to the Northeast, and then I went—I uh, uh, don't even remember where the hell else I went. But uh, Jersey, I think it was. But I went—I did three trips in October for a week for work. Um, which were last minute and unexpected. And that really hurt my October hunting. Um, I had, uh, you've probably seen some of the videos, but I had just buck showing up on screen, like right on cue, like, Hey, it's October 12th. Here I am. Let me just claw this tree with my horns. You know, it's like, right. i I mean, I'm out of state. You know, <laughs> Like <laughs> I should have been sitting at that scrape right, right now, literally with my bow on a hook. So that was very upsetting. Um, But there's nothing you can do about it. Business is business. And that's why we set ourselves up with a lot of opportunities for late season, for early season, for the rut. And and for me, I know that S could hit the fan at any moment. So I'm trying to make sure that I always have a lot of bucks to hunt. And so October was tough. I did have also a pre-planned family vacation in October, which is – I guess I kind of always give my wife that one week because I – Commit a lot to hunting, and so I completely understand leaves changing are pretty and all that. So we went to we went to Gatlinburg and did the Tennessee thing this this October. Nice. That was like October eighteenth uh, to the twenty fifth. How about those dates? Like, it, <laughs> there's no deer hunter that wants to be in Gatlinburg. Right. Yeah, so right. so dude, that's like, <laughs> and that was
0: your October yeah. bread and butter strategy is wicked. if folks haven't like listened to the last episode you were on, they need to go back and catch it. But like you're counting on specific bucks showing back up at specific times in specific locations. You're like keying in on that very first, very early pre-rut first bit of rutting activity. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, or and oftentimes, if it's not if I don't kill the buck that I'm chitlin that I'm there historically hunting, I'll kill somebody that's like his buddy that's with him, like the ten point this year. I wasn't specifically hunting that ten pointer, but about fifty percent of the time it happens where I'm hunting a deer that I was expecting, and then he'll because it's early season still, so like they're bachelored up here in North Carolina until really the end of. October, they right. can. St- I've seen them stay bachelored even in pairs. Like I saw a pair of bucks just the other day; they're still kind of sticking together a little bit. So, um, it's about fifty percent of the time. If I'm hunting like an eight pointer or a ten pointer that I have historical data on, um, maybe he'll come in at fifty yards or eighty yards, and I'll and I'll stick his buddy. <clears throat> and that's what happened out. And because if you've probably noticed, bucks tend to bachelor with similarly aged bucks. Mm-hmm. So if you're hunting a bachelor group of two-year-olds, you know, and you might get a chance at one of his buddies that are a two-year-old. But if you're hunting a mature buck and he's bachelored and he's got two buddies with him, chances are if he's five, he's with a three and a four or another five and another four. He's with similarly classed animals generally, not always, but generally so. The historical data early season on these bucks, yeah, if you can be in that area where you're expecting them, it's not uncommon for them to come. Uh, I have a success rate with that of about this year. I'll just talk about this year because this has been a bad year for me on historical data. I lost a lot of bucks, Mm. Um, and I've still got about 50% fit um, 50- rate of the bucks I expected came back and that's terrible. And that's actually pretty good.
0: I was going to say, if you told me, if you would have told me at the beginning, like, Hey, Josh, this historical data yeah. game that I'm like teaching you on this historical data game is about 50%. I'd have been like, sweet dude. That's awesome.
1: Worst case scenario. Yeah. That's I- worst case scenario because in years past Man. I've had a hundred percent of my bucks come back. Really? man. Yeah. I mean, now if you're only hunting five bucks and they all came back, that sounds, Oh, that's great. But you know, I mean, in years past, that's been the case. There's been years past where I was literally was expecting 25, 30 bucks because I cast that big of a net. And so out of those bucks, sure. Maybe 10 came back, 12 came back. And that's where that statistic comes from. But on years where I didn't have a lot going on, maybe there was, Okay. So I'll give you an example. There was one year I just hunted private land and it was one piece, 300 acres. And there was really only like three or four bucks in there that I was hunting. And for two or three years, those three or four bucks came back like clockwork. And so there are years where a hundred percent of my bucks have came back, but I like to tell people 75% of the time, you know, um, but a lot of that really has to do with the parcel and the piece and the pressure and the predation and everything like that, because, um, in my spots that I hunt that are more urban, it hangs around 50 because I get a lot of vehicle accidents and there's just nothing you can do about that. Right. Um, and I got a buddy right now who's up in Long Island. He's looking at it too, historical data, and he's like, "Dude, every time I get cued in, this is the third year my buck came back last year. He came back the year before. I was gonna kill him this year, and he's dead on the side of the highway." And I'm like, <laughs> uh. "Like that's yeah, you know, and that that happens. So especially in a place like." you know, urban area, Atlanta, Long Island, you know, these guys that are hunting these urban areas and I do hunt a lot of urban bucks and it happens quite a bit. And then even in the wild, um, forestation can displace animals and, you know, we talked about dogs and other things in the past. Oh but yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. So a lot can have
1: hunting pressure. People harvest these, these deer too. So, right. You know, that, right. So you've that's had tough them- when you expect,
0: yeah, it, that's hard when sure. you're, when you're counting on them and kind of building your strategy around it. But I mean, mm-hmm. so this year though, like even sitting at 50%, like the strategy still worked, like you still had a good number of bucks coming back. Um, you just weren't able to be in the stand maybe when you were, uh, maybe when, not when you should have been, cause I think you're doing the right things, right? You're doing family stuff, you're doing work stuff. Like that's the right thing, but you weren't yep. in the stand when yep. you needed to be to kill the deer. Um, but the yeah, process, so yeah, exactly. Yep.
1: Yeah. And what the season is, is it's a series of opportunities and you have to capitalize on them. And if you miss one, you've got to move to the next one. You can't get hung up on it. So that's where having multiple bucks to hunt is key because as you know, like we talked in the first podcast for anybody who listened to that. I mean, I had, I think five or six summer bucks, mature bucks in the summer that straight up just dispersed a couple of guys displaced by hurricanes and flooding and things like that. And then this fall had some dogs, big pack of coyotes, big pack of hunting dogs came through, displaced a couple of bucks. And I know some guys will argue like dogs don't, dogs don't um, really affect deer, but they do. They do. I mean, you can't send 25, Blue picks through three hundred acres, and you won't see a fox for two weeks. So, (laughs) so you can't, you know. So that definitely affects them. And maybe they only move to the next ridge over, but it affects them. You're not hunting the next ridge over, so (laughs) it might as well be a hundred miles if it's a hundred yards. You know. So, um, it affects them. Period. And so, uh, because I've read some of these studies and uh, recently, especially where they're like, you know, hunting dogs don't affect deer and. I think they maybe do. not in the grand picture on 10,000 acres. No, they, no, they don't. Right. But and on I, grandma's and I, 200,
0: exactly. if 12
1: dogs come through and you're hunting Saturday. You're done. Exactly. And I, and I think too, you like know, a lot they, of those folks they'll come
0: back. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of those folks are, are building this, this theory of like, well, dogs don't bother it. Like, you know, somebody came through and coon hunted last night. And, you know, at our, at our lease or whatever, and that didn't bother the deer. The deer were, you know, there's, they're still there. It's like, yeah, but there's a difference between somebody came through and coon hunted last night with a couple of hounds and, you know, covered whatever section that they did. And number one, huge packs, like you said, of hunting dogs that are used to actually push deer. We're talking, we're talking deer hounds that trained, trained deer hounds. But then we're also talking, you know, here in Georgia, we have a huge problem with wild dogs. You know, just dogs that are feral, yeah, right? Yeah. And when you get a pack of feral dogs living on a property, you get eight or ten, eight or nine of them that run that property. They don't necessarily kill the deer. I've seen very few deer pre- like nope. like actually dead, but they chase them for fun. You see it on your trail cameras all the time. And they if you've do. got those same eight or 10 yep. dogs running your 500 acres four days out of the week, <clears throat> three days out of the week, you're going to tell me that doesn't impact deer behavior? come on now
1: it absolutely does because yeah because it depends on your hunting style right but if you are hunting day walking mature bucks then you're hunting them where they bet because that's where they are during the day so you know when you think about like where a mature buck wants to lay down and catch a REM cycle I mean a lot of people don't realize that all terrestrial land mammals have to have a REM cycle every day. So Mm -hmm. there's a brief moment in time, that 20, 30, 40 minutes, where you've probably seen TikToks where like, a guy or gal walks up on a buck and he like kicks it and the thing jumps up and takes off running. There's a moment, a brief moment, where an animal, a mammal, has to catch a REM cycle. And it cannot do that on a place that is inundated, where it's going to be walked up on by dogs, or landscape people, or they need a spot that is completely sacred to to catch that sleep, and so I think like and there's that's why when people say buck beds, that's a kind of a taboo word too. Because define to a buck bed, I mean, what kind of bed are we talking about? I mean, it was this like a a place he's catching a REM cycle or is this just some staging on some early estrus does where he's camped out for a week because they're completely different, you know? And then within the same area, you have your pre daylight and post daylight beds where he shifts as soon as the sun's up. So people say bunk beds. And I mean, there's a lot of definitions of a buck bed. If you're talking a place where he catches a REM cycle, it's not going to be where there's dogs. Right. He can't, yeah. I mean, they'll find, they'll find them.
0: That's right. That's right, man. That's really good. So, all right, let's, let's shift just a little bit now. Cause I want to get into talking about does and here's my thought process on the timing of, of doing this podcast. Like guys right now, now there are some of some who, you know, the rut's not even close yet. Like they're, they're, they're thinking December, January, early February rut for, you know, parts of Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, like Florida. Like I get that. But at the same time, a lot of guys are either, you know, in the middle of the rut right now. They're, they're sort of like peak breeding dates. A lot of the South is going to have that peak breeding date, you know, mid-November on into like Thanksgiving time frame. So this may not be super helpful right now, but the, the reason I want to talk about this right now is not so you can capitalize on it for this season, but so that people can start to capitalize on it for next season because now is kind of the time to start paying attention. Right. Like now's the time to start getting some of the intel that you like to use when it comes to, uh, you know, not just tracking, but also harvesting the does that you choose to harvest, which you're really strategic about both of those things. So can you just start by giving me like a high level overview of Brandon Barlow's approach to does doe tracking and doe hunting in general and how that relates to your overall strategy?
1: Yeah, sure. So I guess the best way to define that would be to just back up and talk about my trail cameras. I run a large, and we talked about this in the first podcast, but for those who haven't listened, I run a lot of trail cameras. I run around 14 cell cameras on 14 local scrapes, local within two hours of my house. Those are my reactionary cameras. They're either on scrapes that I can get to fast if an unexpected buck shows up, which happens a lot. We don't know all the bucks in our County, or if it's an area that historically gets a lot of stragglers, um, unexpected bucks, I'll run a cell camera on those type of scrapes. So I have around 14 of those that uh, if a slob shows up, I can get too fast. I can get, you know, if he shows up this morning, I can be there tonight. Um, but I hunt a tri-state area and that's not always the case. So I run uh, just over a hundred SD cameras, Tasco eight megapixel cameras, get five of them for a hundred bucks. And for historical data, they're perfect. So I run a lot of taskos and specifically I get into these areas with the half deer. So, I mean, I guess rule number one, if hunting deer is fine deer, so it doesn't do you any good if you're in the Adirondacks and you're hanging cameras where there's no deer sign, you need to find browse damage. You need to find bedding activity If you can't find beds because you don't know what they look for, or because beds are hard to find, then you need to find browsing damage. Browsing damage is goes hand in hand with bedding. So if you can find heavily browse damage, browse lines that lead that will lead to a bedding area. um, That's your first. That's your first rule. Um, So once I get on deer, I start to ask the question: Well, what deer? Uh, What are we talking about? I mean, it's a deer track and it's some browse damage, but it's obviously a deer. But what what are we dealing with here? So what I'll then do, depending on the the terrain and the property, everything is different. But I'll run some cameras and to give the listeners an idea on, let's say I came over to your house. You're like, oh yeah, you can hunt my house at my house. Um, It's 50 acres. On 50 acres, I'm probably going to run five cameras on a line through the center of it and depend, like a trap line, Um, and I might do corners, I might do, you know, if it's a narrow piece, I'll do it differently, but if it's a square piece of 50 acres, I'm probably going to run a trap line diagonally through the center of it. I just want to see how the deer are using the terrain, first of all, because there's going to be parts of the property that you can completely X off that they're not using, and there's going to be parts of the property where your cameras are dead because they've used the hell out of it. Right. That's what you first need to determine. You know, after after establishing like that, you can then start to take some of that information and start to uh, try to identify if you have different doe groups using your property and what their range is. That's going to be really important, and that's where it can get kind of tricky because. A lot of people think that all the deer in the woods are just one giant herd. Everything in the United States, is just one herd of deer. And that's just not the case. I mean, um, I've had deer on the same property that fight. They have different estrus dates. I have properties where there's probably 100 does on the property and they all estrus at the same time. It's all very circumstantial. And so what I look for is the early estrus does. And so... um, I'm not a big rut hunter. I don't want to be out doing 25 sits straight in December when it's cold. So I look for the early estrus does right. that are going to provide those early opportunities because those, those does draw the most bucks and in December sure, a hot doe can draw a buck, but in October a hot doe will draw a buck. She will draw many mini bucks. Like you'll, you'll yeah. get to choose which buck you want to shoot. You know what I mean? Yeah. So no, that's good. Um, that's if you really can, good. Yeah, if you can find those early estrus, that's the first thing, first and foremost, when you get on a property is to see if there's deer, find the deer and then figure out what deer. Um, so let's say and a lot of that has to do with, it's kind of hard to break it all down in a podcast, but a lot yeah. of it has to do with stem count and food. So in the Adirondacks, in a big wood situation, does would be more nomadic. They would travel for food. And that can make the whole situation extremely difficult because in order to really study does and collect data on them, you have to be able, you have to be on them 24 seven and you can't get one pick a week of a doe and go, Oh, well, I'm going to unlock this doe's secrets. Like you can't do that. You have to have hours and hours of footage every single day to see her behavior, to see her, you know, when she's standing in a scrape tail cupping or when she's, you know, rub urinating in the scrape versus around the scrape. And then there's, when you run multiple cameras, you can, the data that you collect is more accurate. And I shared a post recently where a doe was rub urinating um, in a scrape and in front of a signpost rub and like laying in it because she was an early estrus doe. But then I turned around and shared another video where a doe was rub urinating and doing the same thing. And then a buck pops in the picture and he was an intruder. And it's like, they do that when they're stressed too. So if I only had the one camera, I would have just said, Oh, there's another early estrus doe. And I would have documented that data as a doe that was, you know, acting um, like she was in heat, almost like a cat acts, you know, but in reality, it was a similar behavior for stress. And so you, you've got to have your data points accurate. And so um, once you get into an area and you get on some deer, you I, I hate to say it, but you really, unless you're going to sit there all day, every day and observe, you have to run cameras. Right. Um, and if you're not going to run video, you have to run more cameras because still pictures are limiting in what they can tell you. Uh, so let's assume you have an oak flat and a thicket on one side of your property and there's a doe group living in there because there's year round food, there's briars, there's acorns. And then on the other side of your property, you have an orchard and a thicket over there and there's another doe group. Well, assuming that those two doe groups overlap, I would make a mock scrape in the center of them. And for me, how I identify that is usually within a week or two, you'll have a two does fight at your scrape. And if I don't have does fight in my scrape, I will generally kill the scrape and move it Hmm. because I know my scrape is only servicing one doe group. So like, I guess that's the one thing I would tell people like look back right now on this season. Do you have any pictures of any does fighting in any of your scrapes? Hmm. And like on video, you're not going to see it on still mode. And that's what I mean by still mode, but on video, like when you see a doe puts her head down and she like, torpedoes towards another doe she's like you know uh, another doe will run away they don't always fight fight but you'll see the chase off and um if you don't have that your scrape's not servicing multiple doe groups
0: right and right away there um that's not a good community scrape so right um, right it just lessens your opportunities right it's not to say that it that a buck will never use the scrape it just means that that's a lower act lower activity hub than one with multiple doe groups using it.
1: Well, that, but at this point, we don't really care about bucks because we're just thinking about the does. So right, right. what that really means is if you can find a scrape where two does are fighting, then you know the edges of those territories. So the first okay. thing to establish is the does territory and find trying to identify a does territory. And that's what I meant by food was if you're in a big wood situation, like up in the, Appalachian mountains and, you know, uh, let's say it's a bad acorn year and the, the deer have to travel. The does have to literally travel from residential neighborhood to residential neighborhood for bird feed or whatever. I mean, that, it makes it really, really difficult. And that's why I, I do a lot of these habitat um, plans with like little micro food plots and hinge cuts and stump sprouts and stuff like that to keep does in a, in a location. Um, because tracking them is a lot easier. So food is going to be the number one thing. So making sure you identify what deer are on your property, figure out the does that are in the same group. They'll get along. They'll groom each other. They'll clean each other. They'll bed together. They'll bed in a circle. They'll lick each other's ears. They'll um, the Even with the spike horns and little four pointers and stuff in the spring and in the summer, they'll groom each other. They're in the same group. And then... You need to, so find a deer group, find its territories, that doe group's territory, find another one, find its territory. Those two territories will generally bump together. That scrape location will, will define the edges of those two territories. Um, and that's really what I do on, on public land. I find a lot of those. I find, I'll go in, I find some does. I'm like, okay, great, you know, I'll set a couple cameras. They're grooming each other. I'm right in the middle of their area. I'll move those cameras won't get any does move them back in a little bit. Maybe I'll get a couple of them once a week. I'm like, okay, that's the outer edge of their territory. I'm getting them on this Oak tree twice a week and that's it. Um, whereas some of my cameras I'm getting their die. I mean, I'm getting all day long videos. So I know I'm in the heart of their bedding area. And then on the other edge of their territory, maybe there's a mock scrape where it butts up to another doe group because that's where I'm putting a mock scrape. And so, identifying your does and their territories is first because without knowing that um, it makes it really hard to, to really do anything else. Um, And that's why doing the whole historical data thing in the mountains is a completely different game than here um, where there's high deer numbers because it's a different strategy. You're purely using historical data, knowing, you saw a big buck at Burger King last Halloween. So he's going to be back this Halloween, but there's no real strategy to tracking the does on a daily basis and, and documenting when they're coming hot and things like that. So um, in a big wood situation, it's a lot more difficult because of the range of a doe here. A doe has approximately a 10 acre home range where back home it was like 200 acres. So, right unless you train for the Ironman every day, it gets hard to track those when they have a huge range, you know, it's uh, versus here where it's really easy. And then more deer numbers, more deer numbers are kind of how I living in the South is how I found hunting the way I did because of the increased deer numbers. I identified that does have a dramatically reduced range with increased deer numbers. And Mm that's also green and herbaceous year round here. So there's no lack of food. And there's a lot of other deer territories overlapping. So does have a very small home range here. And sometimes it's less than 10 acres. Like I'm thinking of a doe there's, I think there's six of them in this group and they live behind my house and they don't leave three acres right? because it's just, there's five different nuts dropping in there and all different kinds of stuff. So, right. Yeah. So, here in the South, it's a lot easier to key in on your does and to perform dose studies. As far as um, yeah, and I've i performed all kinds of dose studies. Like I've ran twenty three cameras on a single dose before. So yeah, um, but just <laughs> out awesome. of the essence of trying to figure things out, you know, I mean not understanding how, cause I didn't have anybody to tell me, well, how big is a doe's territory. When I started doing this like 15 years ago, I just thought deer were all nomadic. I did no idea that, you know, I thought if me and you live 10 miles away, I was thinking it was like ducks. I see a doe this morning. You'll see her tomorrow. Like they're just moving along. I thought they're right. purely nomadic animals like back in the day. And it took all of this studying and all of this, all a lot of these findings for me to realize that's not the case. Um, and in a lot of kind of digging into this was going back with, with my grandfather who used to really emphasize when you see a big buck mark it on your calendar and be there next year in the same tree because if he's alive he's coming back and so um, building off of that you know and I used to I was like well, I don't know if that's really true you know I mean it seems kind of maybe they are like geese they just kind of migrate one way and migrate back and they're all nomadic but that's not the case uh, you know they have a very small range and. I find that does here have a range of around 10 to 15 acres and bucks have a range of around a thousand. I'm getting right. pictures of bucks a mile, a mile apart, you know, but not, not too, too much further than that. Okay. I've got a piebald, a uh, couple of piebald spike horns that one of them ventured out a couple of miles this year. But, um, you, you know, and it's, you talked, you were like, what well, in our last podcast, you said you lost a buck and you got back on him. But, I think if you run cameras in the same type of places, they're good places. Like when you lose a deer, they just turn up on another camera because the camera's in a good bedding area. Um, so for me, I think when you lose a deer, sure. He might be on some private guy's bedding area for a duration, but if you're in a vast country of public land, uh, and you have cameras in these, you have a hundred cameras in you know, 25 bedding areas, that buckle, going to turn back up on another camera. Right. Right. Um, so, so it, it does a little bit become about like, just making sure you have your cameras out and it's, it's hard to do with five cell cameras. I mean, it's impossible. Yeah, yeah. You Got to, you got to collect data and you have to make sure the biggest thing is you have to make sure your data is clean. Like, um, it makes it very difficult when you start contaminating your data with baiting or when you add scent to a mock scrape mm. or you, when you do things like outside nature's natural cycle, then you start to dilute your, your findings. And so how far do you go with that? If you put forehead gland on a vine and a buck hits it tomorrow, do you count that as historical data? Cause you made him hit it. He mm. smelled it from across the field. And he came and he hit it. Is he going to do that again, or do you need to go make a, sc- a natural scrape that he hits routinely on his own that he didn't smell from a thousand yards that didn't pull him across the field? That you know. So when you start to add bait and you start to add scent and you start to draw deer, attract deer unnaturally you start to dilute your data. And then, and so a lot of the guys are like, I can't believe you don't use like buck fever or any of that. And it's, I, I know it works. I mean, I did a, a video a long time ago where I put some on the sidewalk and like 2 a.m. a, a dough was rolling around in it. And so I know that <laughs> stuff works, but I'm not going to like crazy. hang a stand on my sidewalk. Like that's not historical data. Right, so right. if you really, really, really want to figure out the historical timing of the breeding of the deer on your property. You have to first know what deer are on your property. What's there? You got to know. You can't leave it up for guessing a lot of the guys out West and stuff. Oh, that's a bedding sanctuary. I don't go in there. No, you got to go in there. You need to hang your cameras high. You need to hang them in there, put solar panels. So you're not going in there all the time, cut the top of the tree out, whatever you got to do, but hang some solar panels, face them South get a camera in there, get it a couple of sticks high and, uh, do a Watts ranning. but you got to go in there. You have to know the deer that you're hunting. First of all, like you can't leave any of that up for guessing. So you need to know your deer. You need to know their territory. Um, especially the does cause it's probably small and, uh, <clears throat> and then you can start to collect data, but it has to be real data. I mean, you can't, call this meadow a doe's area if you have corn out there. Right. Because she's going to come and eat the corn. And other does and her are going to fight and stuff. But that's not a natural fight over territory. When you see a natural fight in the woods, that's two does establishing a territory line. And that's really important. Right. When you see two does fight over a corn pile, that means nothing. Mm. That means nothing that just yeah. a corn pile attracted a bunch of deer and they're fighting over it. It's not, it's, it's not, it's not a piece of data that I care about versus when you see two does fight in the woods. Okay. Scratch a tree, drop a pin, hang a flag, something, because this is a territory line and this is money versus like two does fighting over some apples. That, that means nothing. So, right. so making sure your data is real data. You know, you didn't pull the buck to your scrape. He naturally came. And he's going to do it again. I think
0: that's huge. Right. Let's start to talk about some of this data then. Um, you know, one of the things that intrigues me has been how you're tracking this, um, this estrus data, because like you said, you want to key in on those first estrus does. Like as mm-hmm. soon as it's time for them, you want to be in there. You, you want to, you want to be there the day they go into estrus. Like you just want You want to be They're able even to time before. It. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Because the bucks know that, right? Like they know it's coming, right? So what are the details of the data that you're trying to pull from that help you to do that? So here's where I'm at, man. I moved. I've got a 30,000 acre piece of public down the road, about 30 minutes, right? I want to get in there and, you know, first of all, I'm overwhelmed because it's 30,000 acres, right? Like it's, it's huge um and it's hard to get into there's no in the off season there is no driving your vehicle in and around on this place like you've got to you're going to be hoofing it you know or or maybe riding a bike but the hills are so steep your bike is basically useless unless it's an e-bike so i've got to get in there i've got to find an area to focus on i need to canvas it so i've got a lot of work to do but then what data am i looking for coming on these cameras besides okay they're fighting but now I want to start to put together my timing plan for next year. How are you backdating or getting to the time frame that you want to be there?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of different things. So it's a it's a compilation of data year round. So for starters, I run cameras 12 months a year because I don't like to just say, okay, this doe did this one time. So this is you take it to the bank. She's an early estrus doe. I need to verify and verify and verify and verify multiple different ways that she's an early extra stone. And, and some of those data points are, um, her body language. If it hits a certain time of the year, you're going to see her do certain things like tail cupping in the scrape, rub urinating in the scrape. You're going to see her shed her fawns. She's going to, she's going to ditch them. Um, with that, it's the second time of the year that you're going to start seeing predators hit your scrape. Uh, early in the spring, I know you probably saw some coyotes and Bobcats. They'll hit your mock scrape like right. June, May. That's because they know that those fawns are coming out of hiding and mom's taking them to the community hub to show them, Hey, this is McDonald's. This is where we go. Well, those, those coyotes and those predators will hunt those new fawns based on that. Well, there's a second opportunity for predators this right now. Those fawns that were born maybe July or a little later, and they're 50 pounds, 60 pounds, 70 pounds, maybe you got a little bit of deep snow right now, um, those fawns that get abandoned for breeding are vulnerable. So another thing that I'll see is the second time the predators start hitting scrapes. I don't know if you saw a couple of videos I posted recently, but the coyotes moved into one of my early estrus spots hard, really hard. I mean, there's probably 30 coyotes in there right now, and Um, they've killed my cameras. The coyotes have killed my batteries. They've, they moved in there hard and that's an early estrus spot. So I'm torn now. I don't know if I want to just go in there and just start shooting yotes or try to go in there and kill a buck. But, um, (laughs) those fawns, uh, are very vulnerable in that location because we had a late season flood that knocked a lot of the grass down. We've also had a frost this year, which killed a lot of the grass. And now those, uh, younger fawns are about to be abandoned for breeding and a 60 to 70 pound fawn is pretty vulnerable to 10 coyotes so um, especially if there's no grass to hide in so uh, the presence of predators on your scrapes is a good one Um, the body language of the deer is a good one the body language of bucks you have to know the signs of the rut and so on your property you're going to start seeing the sign, the rut phases kick off the sign phase. You're going to see your buck start hitting signpost rubs, stuff like that. How those does interact is really important. So for example, the doe I killed with my recurve, she was still feeding in the feet. She was still feeding, uh, on the edge of a field with acorns with her two doe fawns. She was still feeding with, I think it was a doe fawn from last year who looked to be two or three who had a pair of buttonhorn fawns with her. Uh, that's why she was safe because of her button horns. But, um, uh, so the fact that they were still all just happy, go lucky feeding together indicates that they're nowhere near estrus. and it's November 15th. That doe is useless to me. So I don't, I don't care about a doe that comes hot in three more weeks. And so right. that's why I killed the other one because screw her. She's, you know, I don't mean it like that. I really respect the animal and I'm grateful to have harvested her. But what I mean is screw her timing. Right. Because that's not doing me any good. Like if she's not even thinking, like there was no chasing happening. The yearlings weren't chasing. They're all still feeding together and it's a November 15th or so. So if that's going to be the behavior you display, you're completely useless to me for hunting the pre-rut and the rut. And so now you become an eater doe um, versus another spot that I have where I have heavy predators moving in. I have a doe who's been like just rubbing and laying on a on a community uh, or on a uh, signpost rub. She literally has been sleeping at a signpost rub, rubbing against it, scraping around it, um, arching her. You know, when they do their rub urinating, you can tell by the arch of their back and how low they go. There's a there's a lot there. I would tell people to really study body language if you're going to deduce data from these cameras. Um, so body language. Bucks, predators, those are all really important. And that's kind of in season, in the fall, what you're going to see. And then you take all of that and you combine it with your historical buck sightings. You're going to have bucks that stage and show up prior to her estrus, And that's probably the the most fun way to tell. But it's also um, a really good indicator when you see the chasing happen by the yearlings. That's usually about two weeks before. You know, every four pointer in the woods is going to start chasing her around and being a terrorist. And that's about a week or two before what you're going to see is her scrape go dry. Um, I'm just spitballing you. There's a million things I look for literally, but the just prior to peak estrus, scrapes dry up. You, right now I have, I just posted a video as we were getting on here of some chasing happening at a scrape. I know that that scrape is going to turn off probably in the next one, to two weeks. Right now the buck hit it this morning. She hit it. Another spike corn hit it last night. The scrape is just getting annihilated and the chasing is happening. So, um, when we get off here, you'll be able to see the video, but, uh, it's chasing is happening, but I know in the next week to two weeks that scrape will just be a ghost town, like a saloon door swinging in the wind, man. There's not going to be any action there. And when that happens, I know for a fact that she's hot. Um, I've documented it before. I've seen does get bred. I've seen standing estrus. And in those moments, in those days, day two days before that happens, scrapes dry up completely. The bucks don't need to hit the scrape anymore. They only do that to early season. They'll hit the scrapes to leave their scent, establish their thousand acres, whatever it is, but also to see – who else is around. But when Estrus approaches, I think bucks can tell from greater distances because what I have documented is scrapes dry up completely and bucks will start more, uh, cruising and doing like crossing bedding entrance trails instead, just right. Or leeward side, like either trails into bedding where they can smell the ground or they'll downwind edge bedding but I think a lot of guys talk about like you want to hunt leeward those bedding areas in the rut and I have to be honest um the way does enter bedding is not always leeward sometimes they just graze in and they'll do it with tailwind so if that's how a doe enters a bedding area that's how the bucks will enter a bedding area so if someone says, oh, well, it's easy to hunt the rut, you just hunt leeward, you're, you know, downwind your doe bedding groups. Well, is that how they come in? Because I want to hunt the entrance trails more than downwind. So knowing, you know, having those cameras in place to know how your does filter into that bedding area is important too, because where they enter is where you want to hunt when the scrape turns off. Right. And, and that's, right. that's a huge, huge missed opportunity where people either stay on the scrape too long or
0: they hunt just downwind bedding area, even though that's not where the entrance trails are. Right. I saw a lot of that. I just, I just got back from Wisconsin. Right. And you know, I try a mix of like, let's get downwind of the bedding. Let's do this. Let's do that kind of thing. Right. And I saw more this year because I paid a lot more attention to it and I was more careful to hunt it like this. I saw more number one bucks running that like, parallel trail from the direction that the does enter and like stopping at each little trail that goes up into the bedding and they would stop and they'd walk down at just a couple feet, sniffing, sniffing, then turn around. They looked like a dog searching for a bird, you know, and they would hit each trail and take that trail for just a couple steps sniffing around. And then they'd turn around and keep running the other trail that was perpendicular to all of those other trails. Another thing that I saw was, um, bucks that were really hot and heavy and doing a lot of searching, not more like calmly searching. I'm like, I'm going to go check the trails, but you know, chasing does or flushing does out. They're just barreling through the bedding area. You know, they're not, they do not <laughs> yeah. give a, you know, they do not give a rip. And the, these aren't bad bucks either. I'm not Brush talking.
1: That's, yeah. They're just trying to flush a rabbit. Yeah. Yep. They just run yep. straight
0: up into there and run through it. So I'm <laughs> like, man, honestly, if my strategy was to hunt downwind only of doe bedding and not have other things going on in my favor, I don't think the downwind of doe bedding would have produced for me
1: now. But you'd be surprised how many guys, especially out west, that's their entire
0: plan. Right.
1: Just get downwind of a bedding Yeah, just
0: get downwind. And it's like, man, I saw a lot more deer. Now, yeah, at times I was downwind and the deer were running perpendicular to the doe trails. But I saw a lot of bucks just like, you know, come from pretty open timber, you know, cross like this little terrain feature that I was hunting specifically. And then just barrel off straight into the bedding, you know, they're not <laughs> scent checking. Yeah. They're not doing nothing. They're just like, I'm getting in there and I'm messing some stuff up. Like I'm finding something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I'm guessing that was South. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm guessing that was not down South. No, that was up North. Okay. Yeah. 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 Because I'm thinking, cause that sounds like behavior I'm expecting in two to three weeks.
0: Right. Yeah. Here. No, this was uh this was up in Wisconsin.
1: Yeah, see, that's the be so that behavior you're you're talking about right there is is pretty much when it, I'm out of the woods. If yeah. I'm not tagged <laughs> out, I'm pretty much just waiting for late season. um I hate the rut. I don't have a lot of places here to hunt it. When I was up north, I loved it, but we had terrain and funnels and pinches and stuff. But here yeah, it right. sucks. It's thick. It's herbaceous. It's green year round. There's no real terrain, and it's there's a million does. So we got what one mature buck per square mile and. You know, 45,000 does. Good luck. uh, Yeah. You know, not good (laughs) odds. good luck picking the dough he's on. So, right. Yeah. The rut really is tough here. So, I would rather for me, what you're describing is peak rut. That sounds like, I mean, that sounds like peak rut. And that is, that is a time where you just forget about all of this and you just enjoy the scenery. You try to sit (laughs) in a nice, a nice, either a nice, like an interior opening in a thicket, like, uh, you know, where you can get an arrow off or you try to sit in a pinch where you can see a long ways with a rifle and, and let one rip. But, um, it makes it really hard to do any kind of strategic calculated move where really does uh, once that starts to happen. Yeah. Because they just want to flush those deer up, like kicking a brush pile and kicking out rabbits. They just want to run into that bedding area. And if they come in, if they go into the bedding area with some sort of, you know, conservative manner, they'll kick up a doe or two, but when they just run in there, like you're talking about, they kick them all out. Like (laughs) they like all the deer just like, holy shit. And they just explode. (laughs) I've seen that a bunch of times. And that is, that's when I really hate personally. That's when I really hate hunting. And I know everybody loves that, but it just, it really becomes a game of luck at that point. And I'm not lucky. So yeah. You know, I've never won anything, so like I don't like the run. <laughs> so yeah. 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 I'd rather just sure. know defined territories, defined timing, and look for body language, look for signs at the scrape, look for signs on the animals, look for and then that's all in season. Um I kind of went down a rabbit hole there, but it's a year round endeavor. So I was talking about making sure like verifying and verifying and verifying. So that's, that was eight or 10 ways that I verify a doe's estrus state based on body language and the bucks and the predators and, and all of that stuff, but also year round. So a doe's territory changes. It doesn't travel a lot, but you know, there's acorns and then there's soybeans and then there's You know, as the food changes, their territories will change. So if those distances are 10 miles because it's the Adirondacks, that makes it really tough. But if it's like here in North Carolina where there's so much food, I mean, one of my properties, I think I got to 10 or 11 different types of nuts that are dropping in there. So, like, they don't have to go anywhere. They're not going to go anywhere. Yeah, there's pecans and walnuts and red oaks and white oaks and black oaks and beech and there, there were cherries. I mean, there's like everything in there. And so it's like, they don't have to go anywhere. And then that doesn't even count the greenbrier and the, and the vetch and all just the crap that grows in there. So, um, you know, that's what I look for. And so sure. Yes. I can go find a place where there's not a lot of food and the does are really more nomadic and they're very hard to track. And I avoid those places. If I get into an area where I feel like I'm going to have to work my ass off, off too hard to stay with some does because there's just not enough there. I abandon it. But if I find a place where there's five different nuts dropping and there's green briar and maybe the landowner says, Oh, Hey, yeah, sure. You can throw some clover out on a gas line or maybe there's, you know, uh, they'll let me do some hinge cuts or on public. What I really, 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 really key in on is storm damage, specifically mm-hmm. from flooding in these creeks. When I can find where a storm like in an oxbow just did 30, 40 acres worth of damage and knocked over trees and stuff that provides so much diversity that the does will get in there and they will not leave period. Right. Like you can't fly even a buck like you're talking about, can't even flush them out because the grass is so dense. Right. And that those areas provide increased chasing and the pre rut and can provide you with a lot more opportunity. That buck, you know, will hit that scrape four or five times in a day versus once because the stem count is so high. Um, so I really I really key in on public in those areas. So I guess what, what I'm saying is it's not easy to track does everywhere because the food's not there and the cover's not there, but but abandon those areas. You're wasting your time. Go to areas where you have high diversity, high stem count, high deer numbers. You know the doe group is going to not have to travel for food. She's not gonna have to travel for fawning, which is, which is gonna be my next point. And then also she, um, you know, with the security from coyotes and dogs and stuff like that, because one thing I've learned is it doesn't do you any good to invest all this time if there's no grass and then the next pack of coyotes come through and they just ruin your whole game. So for me, stem count is really, really huge. Um, just because I, I just, I can't stand when my does are just moving all around on me. It makes the entire effort waste a waste of time. Um, so because as that segues to fawning, which is the next phase, so yeah, back up to the backup, this to the is backup, the part that is, I'm like
0: super intrigued by like this, this is really, yeah. really interesting to me. I've, I've never, ever done it. So,
1: yep. So fawning, so all of that being said, so let's say you've, you found some, you went into your property, you found a doe group over there and you found a doe group over there. You thought they were all one big doe group, but you put some cameras out and you see that they, they were naturally fighting not over corn or anything like that. But you, you put this mock scrape in, it didn't work. You killed it. You put another one in didn't work, you killed it. Well, you put a third one in and guess what? This one, you've got two does fighting at. So you're like, Holy crap. All right. I'm right between the two doe groups. This is perfect. So from there, you're going to use, that's a good scrape for historical data. So that's what you're going to start to do there. You're going to start getting your historical data. You're going to start documenting these does. You're going to add additional cameras on each doe, on each of the two doe groups, with whatever you have for doe groups to start to define their outer territories as food changes and things like that. And you need to know the food for every month, you know, every season of the year again, because if your does are moving on you, it doesn't do you any good, but assuming you did your homework and you know that these does are not going anywhere. There's apples and then there's acorns and then there's greenbrier And then you planted some winter rye whatever. And they're, they're just not going anywhere. And you know that for a fact. So you found two dog groups, you put a mock scrape between them, you know, they're not going anywhere. You've studied their body language. You pretty much have some historical buck pictures. Now, let's say it's been out there for a couple of years, you know, when your bucks are coming, um, You kind of went back, looked at some of your doe's body language. Maybe one of the does is, uh, you know, showing signs of being solo and showing signs of, you know, deep arching back, rub urinating, things like that, whereas the other doe, maybe she's still eating with her fawns and, you know, not showing any signs of breeding. So you you start to kind of paint a picture. Well, guess what? I might have one late doe and one early doe. It's starting to look like that, but the only real way to know it's not going to be buck pictures or anything like that. The real way to know, unless you see her be bred, um, is fawning. So when, if you spend enough time in the woods, you will see a doe get bred, but you can't do that all the time. It's very rare. I've only seen it a couple of times and I live in the woods. So I think you should fawning is going to be your easiest bet for nailing down asterisk for me. So, identifying when a doe drops or fawns can also be very difficult. Um, you first of all need to be able to anticipate what food source she's going to be on in the spring. And that food source pretty much has to bump up against some grass or some, some briars or some kind of stem count, or, you know, she's really not going to fawn there. So understanding where your does, historically drop fawns is important because it's just like historical buck sightings. If you know where those historically fawn, then it's like taking candy from a baby. I mean you can run five tascos and know when every single fawn was born, but that's not always the case. So um <clears throat> I think uh sorry I got a bunch of messages here in one short succession. Um <laughs> what Remind me what I was saying. Yeah, no, we're talking about so,
0: figuring out when those fawns exactly are dropping and and where. And you were like, "Hey, you can you, if you can figure that out, you can find you can get five TASCOs and get them in there yes. and start to figure it out."
1: Yeah. So exactly. So it's all based going to be based on food. So um, a lactating mother requires certain things, and so you need to figure out what she's what she's going to eat right before she drops her fawns. And one thing I found is greenbriars are huge, anything broadleaf. She's going to really key in on broadleaf, but anything with new generation or regeneration or new generation. So if there's something new growing, she's going to key in on that for the nutrients. If, uh, I used to call them stump sprouts, I guess today, there's a bunch of guys calling them mineral sprouts, but uh, we used to cut down trees, and we found a long time ago, with logging efforts that the does. How this started was years ago with logging efforts. We found that in the spring we would literally see those dropping fawns on stump sprouts, and so um, we pretty much learned maybe ten or fifteen years ago that they they like them. We didn't really know why, but um, it's a big a big effort. I use stump sprouts to. Uh, key in on lactating does anything broad leaf that they can eat this is a time of year they're really going to segue off of grass off of nuts any kind of old acorns that are still hanging around um, they're really going to be looking for the most nutrient rich stuff that's touching high stem count so uh, generally that sounds great but where do you find that so for me a lot of times i make it I go out on public and I find these areas with storm damage where nature made it for me. It's another reason why I key in on you know last year's hurricane damage or this year's hurricane damage because I don't have to do the physical work, but let's say it's it's at your house and I don't have what I'm saying. I have to go in there now and I have to make hinge cuts. Hinge cuts are the biggest dough magnet in the world. If you make enough hinge cuts in an area, the doughs will fawn. In them especially if you add the stump sprouts and you have other natural broadleaf forage for them at that time of year um, but again it still comes down to the amount of cameras you run but knowing that that doe has a short range you're really only trying to hone in on an, on an animal that has a 10 or 15 acre range especially here in the south so that doesn't require a whole lot of cameras and so that's where I go more to uh, food cameras in the spring and I'll see a pregnant doe hit my food, whether it's guys bait and do supplemental feeding. If you don't have the ability to stump sprouts or hinge cuts or, you know, plant a broadleaf like soybean, but you can find uh, on food, you should see your does come in in the spring. They're going to come in, they're going to be pregnant. And then you're going to see them tom- uh, tomorrow and they're not going to be pregnant. You can tell when a doe drops a fawn. I mean, she looks significantly different after dropping a fawn. She's much smaller. So that kind of goes back into what I was saying. When you have does that you can identify in the last podcast, it makes life a lot easier. I love more than anything. When I find a doe that has a distinguishing feature because, um, I can tell her from the rest of the crowd and it makes right. life a lot easier for me. But, um, but food cameras in the spring and where food, where their preferred food in the spring, generally something broadleaf is up against thickets and grass is generally where they'll, where they'll do their fawning. Um, and I'll run, you know, five Tascos on 10 acres and that doe group on that doe. And I'll see two or three of them drop their fawns and I'll have a good idea, you know, when those fawns were dropped based on, a number of things, but they'll pass my camera pregnant and then they'll pass my camera, not pregnant. I've seen them drop their fawns on camera. Um, I've seen a doe disappear and seven days, eight days later, she returns with a fawn following her and you start to put together some auxiliary data. Like, you know, that they stash their fawns for a couple of days and, um, uh, Generally, it takes around 12 hours. They'll lay down and they'll have their fawns. Then you'll see the doe and then you won't see the fawn for up to a week. I find two to three days and then the fawn will be behind the mom. But So just, again, reading the body language and reading what you see on your camera and watching pregnant does until they're not pregnant and then also seeing those fawns for the first time. When you see the fawns, for the first time, that's a good indicator. Once you've watched them long enough, you know a fawn that's a day old from a fawn that's a week old, period. I mean, right. one looks, <laughs> right. one's fuzzy looking and he has wobbly legs and the other one can jump four feet in the air. Right. Well, that was going to uh, be- my After head. about a week, they're pretty wily. That was yeah. going to be my
0: next question is like, when you get a fawn on camera, like, I I am probably personally not very good at telling how old a fawn is yet, right? If I'm getting a fawn on camera, like, you know, and it's, it's what I would consider early to maybe to be getting a fawn, like, or maybe, you know, on the, on the earlier end, like, how old are you considering, you know, if you just got a fawn on camera for the very first time, like, typically, are you going to say, okay, that's, that's two days to a week, somewhere in that range? I missed a. I missed a bunch of your
1: question, but I think you were saying basically how do I age a fawn once I've seen it, excluding the obvious, which is if you see an April fawn, you know it's an early doe, or if you see, so there's going to be the obvious benchmarks, right? So if you see a fawn in April or say before May 15th, because you're in the South now, like you're going to see that, right. you're going to see um, April to early May fawns, then you know for a fact those are going to be your late October to this time of year breeders those are the does that now now you've seen that fawn drop let's say May 15th you've done the math you're like okay holy crap you know October 30th or whatever I'm not in front of the calculator but let's just say that you know the math works out to October 30th so then you're like okay so that lines up with what I found with the chasing and that lines up with what I found when she ran her fawns off and when the coyotes showed up at the scrape and that lines up when the big bucks started passing my camera and that, that lines up with 7,000 things that we, we talked about that, you know, all the signs that point to have now been confirmed finally with a May 15th fawn drop because she disappeared for seven days and came back and a fawn was following her and it's May 25th, you know? So, um, That type of thing you know is an early fawn. If you start getting into, let's say, July is where it gets hard because when it's July, you could have a fawn that was born 10 days ago or 25 days ago, and that can be pretty tough, especially because now the soybeans are tall and everything's tall and the little buggers just disappear in that stuff and you can't get a good look at them. And so around July is kind of when I step back and – I pretty much just get away from the deer altogether. Uh, I'll do some camera maintenance at that time. I start to move my camera. I'm still probably moving cameras from from bedding to from doe fawning back to looking for summer bucks and bachelor groups. So um, I'm pretty much pulling back off them around July because it's hard to tell on fawn age. But as soon as August rolls back around, you're back in business again because um, – there's a couple of ways you can tell when August 1st approaches for one, while everybody else is out glassing bucks, um, I'm out glassing fawns because that's where my opportunity is going to be late season Generally speaking, I'm not out glassing because I don't care about this year's deer. I'm not looking for, if I, even if I found a buck, I'm not hunting him. I'm not, I'm going to put cameras out for a couple of years. You know, I I never hunt a buck when I first find him. So I'm never out glassing bucks. It would be, it would be pointless for me to, I mean, unless I found like a booner or something in my neighborhood, of course. Right. Right. That would never happen here. So, um, I, I don't glass in the summertime unless I'm glassing fawns. And what I'm looking for in August, August 1st, is those fawns that have either lost their spots or they've almost lost their spots. And that's gonna be on a bell curve compared to everything else. So when you look out in a field and you see a bunch of spotted fawns, cool. And you get to the next field and you look out there and you see a bunch of spotted fawns again. And oh wait, oh wait a minute, there's one in the back. He's only got half his spots. That's what you want to know. So there's two ways to tell in the fall, which is the fawns that lose their spots first, because it can be be really hard to judge their weight on the hoof or their right. size when they're out in a bean out yeah on a bean field. So you got to try to get them on trail camera where you know that ten other trail cameras have these fawns. They're all spotted. Some of them are forty pounds, fifty pounds, sixty pounds. They got spots but then you got this one doe who has a pair of button horns and they've just about lost their spots. Um, so you don't have to know when the doe drops the fawns in the spring. It's helpful to confirm your fall findings, but there's another opportunity to confirm those findings and that's in August. That same, the same doe is going to have fawns lose their spots before any of the other does. So I'm out looking for that. I'm out looking for those fawns that are already losing their spots when no other fawns are. That's a huge indicator. And then that's from the vehicle. But thirdly, if you're going to be boots on the ground, you can measure their tracks. Um, Hmm. A fawns track that is going to estrus this year, a fawn, not all fawns estrus, as I'm sure most listeners know by now, they, if they're born early enough and they reach a certain weight and maturity, 70, 80 pounds, uh, they'll estrus in the same year they're born. So those early fawns will lose their spots first, but those early fawns are also bigger, like physically. So in the woods, when you find a doe track that is accompanied by fawn tracks, you can measure the tracks and determine the age of the fawn that way. A fawn that's going to asterisk, in my experience, and I, you know, people who listen to this, maybe it's – but my experience has been that if a fawn track is – Seventy percent the size of the mother's around October or around August first, that fawn's going to estrus. That fawn is the fawn that is either doesn't have spots or the spots are almost gone. And I've proven that a million times. I will go out and I will follow deer and deer tracks, and I'll see little little fawn tracks. You know, maybe the mother's track is two and a half inches uh two inches, maybe two inches wide, and the little fawn track will be, you know, an inch wide. And I'm like, nope. Three quarters of an inch wide, an inch wide, inch and a quarter wide, nope, 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 nope. And then I'll go out and I'll glass up a fawn that has almost no spots. And I'll walk to the back of the field and I'll see the mom's track is two inches and the font's track is an inch and seven eighths. And I'm like, yep mm. that, that you know, if it's more than seventy percent, that is an old font. That font is gonna is gonna estrous. So Um, measuring the tracks is a way to age fawns that you can't physically lay eyeballs on. I, you'd have to do that in soybean fields sometimes because they just disappear in there and they live in there and there's really no way to glass them up and tell if they're losing their spots yet. So, um, you have to physically go out in the bean field and just find a doe and fawn tracks and just see around August 1st and just see how big those tracks are. If they're, you know, 50% or less her size, that font's not going to asterisk, um, but if it's you know, their big track, eighty eighty five percent of her track, then they're absolutely going to asterisk. And if you could see that font, it wouldn't have spots at that time, or they'd be almost gone. So there's a couple of ways to kind of back up the backup for the backup, if that makes yeah. sense. But yeah, well, um, and the, the all more of that is in an effort to reconfirm what you're seeing in the fall,
0: right? And that's what I was going to say. You know, like the more of this yeah. you have, like. You're stacking it all together to where now you're able to make some pretty reasonable conclusions at the end of like, hey, all of these things add up. Therefore, you know, this doe group is probably going to be my priority doe group that I need to get dialed in on.
1: Yes, and so that's how I plan my hunts for the year based on that timing. I plan my sits at those scrapes at those times pretty much only. And I have enough of these spots where I don't hunt them twice. I mean, like the spot that I killed the 10 with my bow in September, there was the eight that I was hunting with him, seeing him with my eyeballs. And then a mystery buck also that I didn't see a mature buck with them. Um, I haven't been back there and I probably won't because that's a sanctuary spot back to the word sanctuary where I don't go in there and pound that spot like that. I know what weekend to hunt it. I make sure I'm there. I'll be there next year. Hopefully I'll get a crack at that eight, but for me, I have a lot of those spots. So like this coming Saturday, I have a spot. I would never go hunt that Island where that eight was this coming Saturday. Cause it's going to be you know, around 1120. I'm expecting a buck on another scrape from last year. He'll be five this year. So I'm not going to go hunt that eight on that Island. I'm going to go where I think I need, you know, so uh, when that opportunity passes me, it's generally behind me at that point, unless I have his historical data where, which happens where a buck shows up, say October one, and then he comes back, you know, late season or again, a second time. And that can happen. But for the most part, I had one crack at that Island. I killed a buck in there and I'm out of there until next year. It's, I very, very dedicated. I'm very dedicated to historical data in that regard. I do some reactionary hunting where I, you know, I'm getting to that point this year I'm getting desperate where I'm just going to have to go find hot deer sign and set up on it because, um, I'm really just seeing a lot of three-year-olds and I'm getting discouraged locally here, but Maine didn't work out. We didn't talk about that, but that was a debacle. And so, you know, I, I think I've had a good season on paper. I've sat six times and killed three deer and a hog, but I feel like I'm getting my teeth kicked in. So I'm I'm about there. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, I'm not going to go back to that island and just hunt. For the sake of hunting, I guess if that makes sense. Right. I it's not a high odd sit that way. You know, and that's really what I seek out is to have a lot of these spots, just tons of these types of spots where it's a high odd sit once or twice, and then forget about that spot until next year, just right. On to the next. Right. Because you I think a lot of people eat tag sandwiches by over hunting spots.
0: Oh, for sure. Man, so, that is
1: So that I is do the opposite. Totally I get true. a lot of spots, and I hit them once, and that's it. One and done. Maybe, well, old man Earl, I sat on old man Earl three times, two two or three times this year, and I, he's dead to me now. <laughs> I'm over him. But, uh, <laughs> he, you know, he, for the guys that don't know and the gals that don't know, he's just an old buck I found. He's got big bases, but he doesn't have a great rack anymore. But he's an old animal, and he didn't get that old for no reason. I've sat on him a couple of times, but that's a good example of a buck that you know, he's old news to me now or else I hope somebody else gets him because the biggest takeaway I think is for people is to just move on, have a right. lot of bucks, have a lot of historical timing, a lot of expected showings and just move on, move on, move on. That way every hunt's a first hunt. You know, you always hear these guys, like these pros talk about like the first hunt's the best hunt. I always kill on the first sit. You know what I mean? And like, I do actually always kill on the first I mean, I always kill on the first sit, but I often kill on the first sit. Right. I'm not one of these guys that runs around saying that, but it, I think it's, it goes in part because I'm always hunting a new animal. Mm-hmm. I'm just a one sit, two sit done like old man Earl. I'm not going to hunt him five times. I'm just not. It's a waste of time. You go in there once or twice. If you didn't do it, you're not going to. I mean, you could, sure. There's guys that put their nose to the grindstone and get it done, but yeah. that ain't fun for me. I don't
0: no i don't like that that's tough two more sits on earl
1: and i'll quit
0: yeah yeah for sure well man look we've we've been going for about an hour but dude this has been incredible uh you have a standing invitation man anytime you want to jump back on the show and talk deer with me but uh for folks who maybe didn't catch our last episode or don't know where to find you where you where would you send them
1: Check me out on Instagram. It's going to be the only place I'm really sharing any any real content. It's uh, Carolina underscore Reaper three one five on Instagram. Um, not really doing anything anywhere else just yet, but yeah, yeah. I appreciate it, man. Uh, just for the listeners out there, find the Rupp Hardy, write it on a calendar, and make sure you're there next year. It's a lonely, it's a lonely sit when you're in the woods and nothing's happening this That's time right. of year. So. That's right. Um for the, for the people who maybe are struggling, leave, you know, I know it sounds funny to say leave the weapon at home and grab some cheap cameras, but but do it. Go walk, find the deer, find the rut sign, find the rubs and hang some cameras and mark it on your calendar where they were for next year and go back and hunt this time. It's cuz right now when you set up on hot sign you're hunting yesterday's buck and that's no fun.
0: Right, right. And man, yeah. those tascos, they are workhorses for the money like if you're a guy it's like I want to buy some trail cameras but I don't know what I should get man go spend 30 bucks on a Tasco and you will not regret it you won't
1: yeah even buying them singly they're under yeah they're like 29.99 it's a great deal and I have one that has I have one that rattles it has buckshot
0: in it because somebody shot it but it still works
1: (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) it should be a Tasco
0: commercial yeah for sure for sure well cool man thanks for coming on the show I appreciate your time Yes, sir. Likewise. That's all for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, please go subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And if you can leave us a review, I would really appreciate that. Until next week, let's keep doing things the Southern way.